Well, it's two minutes till, so we'll go ahead and start. Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather again after the holidays. And we are grateful for a place to meet, grateful, Lord, for fellowship of believers. And we pray that you would just be present with us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Tonight, we'll start in on what the term we use is Christian cults, okay? Now, Christian cults as opposed to non-Christian cults, okay? Non-Christian cults are religions that are completely false, make no claim to being a part of Christianity. We've already looked at those. Buddhism, you know, whatever. All of the different um, idolatry um, and so forth. Christian cults has to do with groups that at least try to pass themselves off as Christian or say that they believe, as far as they're concerned, enough of Christian orthodox theology that they should be considered Christian. Now, there are, um, it's important to start this out by a quick look at the definition of a Christian cult because there's disagreement even among evangelical Christians as to whether some of the groups we'll look at are indeed cults, okay? Um, now, I think, I think all of them are, okay, that we're going to be looking at. But um, there are some that are less fouled up than others. So um, you have to have, you look for at least some of the major marks of what makes a cult a cult, okay? So, <clears throat> um, Real quick, the, cult, the word cult didn't mean cult for centuries, thousands of years. You used the term, and uh, you used the term for any, anything that has um, gods or God involved, rituals, um, practices that are peculiar to that particular religion so that we we are cultic in the really really broad sense of the term we're we're the jews were cultic they had all the feasts and the sacrifices and the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice that w- that's called cultish um practices we meet on Sundays we sing we read the Bible we preach we pray those are considered cultic practices okay unfortunately then later the word cult got narrowed down to false religions passing themselves off as legitimate and so 
uh, it can sometimes be a little confusing when you read some books that talk about, you know, the cultish this or that. They don't mean false religion. They mean a set of practices. Okay, that's the generic meaning. Um, but the definition of a Christian uh, cult is generally this. Um, a minority religious group holding beliefs considered unorthodox or spurious, false, okay? But, but claiming the name Christian. Um, <clears throat> we'll, we'll jump to just the marks. You don't have to have all these marks, but if you have a majority of these marks, um, it pigeonholes you as a cult. <clears throat> Some of the characteristics. Extra, extra sources of authority, meaning other than or in addition to the Bible. Okay? We'll be looking in a little bit here at the Mormons. The Mormons have the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants, and a couple of other uh, um, gatherings of writings of the presidents or the chief you know, prophets since the 1830s. Um, and they are, they're in addition to Scripture, which itself is a lie, because they use this term and the Bible where properly interpreted. Okay? In other words, all those other books, Doctrines and Covenant and Pearl Great Price, Book of Mormon, trump Scripture. If the Bible disagrees with what their books say, the Bible loses. Okay? Um, <clears throat> but that is a mark. Other extra supposed revelations. Um, second, a messianic kind of leadership, whether it's David Koresh, you know, down in Waco, Texas, um, whether it's Joseph Smith, uh, every one of the cults have some outstanding, uh, at least in their minds, leader who is happy to puff up his reputation and make claims of his um, near deity, okay? Uh, outlandish claims then about their um, connection to God and the authority that they carry um, and so forth. A third one is almost without fail, every single cult, and I, I think we could say er, every cult has this mark, deny justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? They will usually add works of some kind, uh, different kinds of um, requirements, let's say, um, in addition to justification by faith and continuing to walk with the Lord. Okay? Um, along with that, there's almost always a devaluation of Christ in terms of the Trinity, whether he's the full... Um, Son of God, co-equal, 
co-essential, co-eternal, almost all of them somehow diminish the standing of Christ. And, and along with that, there's, I don't know of any, there's maybe one group I believe is a cult that do not deny the Trinity. Almost everyone that is a full-blown cult, they deny the Trinity. Okay? Um, they also claim to be, as a group, an exclusive community of the righteous or the saved. Okay? Nobody else um, is going to make it. No one else is right at all. They are the final chosen ones, and they have a special calling, and to them God has uh, bequeathed the last best hope for God on earth. Okay? Um, Also, another mark, a claim of special discoveries of truth. This is an old, old statement, but... Uh, many people have made it down through the centuries, but we need to stick to it. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. Okay, when somebody comes up with some you know, new revelation or some new discovery, I hate to break it to us, but there's an innumerable train of brighter people than all of us are that have already lived thousands of years ago who already saw this truth, okay? So, um, whenever there are announcements of, you know, new, new discoveries or new revelations, just shut it off. <clears throat> um, they all usually... If they have a doctrine or a belief in eschatology in times, uh, they will occupy in their doctrines a central place in the last times. The 144,000 of the Jehovah's Witness. Um, The Mormons, just to give you a little glimpse, uh, maybe an incentive to become a Mormon, is there are kind of three levels of planets and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if you're a temple Mormon, meaning you got married in the temple and all this stuff, um, then you get to rule your own planet. And then the Christians bring you your slippers and your paper. Um, because we don't go to hell because we at least believe a few things. And so they pat us on the head and tell us, you know, um, as long as you sweep the porch and wait on us, you're good. Um, but at any rate, that's a mark. Another mark um, doesn't go with everyone, but an enslaving organizational structure. Meaning, in the extreme cases, and you can't go into every cult, but you look at um, Jim Jones, you know, um, you sacrifice everything. You give up everything. You cut your family off. You, in many cases, you're required you're even required to divorce your wife, husband, and maybe have a communal wives and husbands and open marriage. Um, and you do these things, you give your money or else. Um, before I 
I can't remember, the last five years or so that I lived in Oregon before I moved back to the Midwest to pastor, um, we had the Rajneeshis um, that were in the news every single day um, in, in Oregon. I'd fly in and out doing whatever, you know, global ministry. Um, fly into Portland or leave in and out just jammed with, with Rajneeshis. And they all had this purple, weird kind of orangish purple robes they wore. Um, and they were the ones that they, they donated. It really connected with Hollywood people. Um, took over an entire county in eastern Oregon. Little tiny town of Antelope, which had 40 people in it, was the only thing, the only big city around. Well, they took over the city and they, they literally brought busloads of people from Skid Row that wasn't really homelessness yet. That was in the early 80s. Brought them in from L.A., from Florida, from everywhere and let them be there for, I don't know what, it was Oregon wisely put through a 24-hour registration to vote law and early state to do it. And so they brought those people in. They stayed in the tent for 24 hours. They went to the county courthouse to register to vote, and they voted the whole city council and the cops and everybody out and put all their own people in. And then they bought up huge ranches. And at the height of the thing, the Rajneeshi, or Rajneesh or whatever, Bhagwan, um, had 97 um, Rolls Royces. Uh, that's the kind of money he dragged out of those people. And we'd sit and watch it every night on TV. And he would drive, he'd drive probably two, three miles an hour, okay, on the roads in this whole vast, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres they bought up. And they would throw these petals of flowers, and he would just drive real slow. Um, and he, it turns out he was a total creep um, in, in a sexual, the whole thing was they had massive 5,000 uh, people meetings under these big um, kind of open-sided buildings uh, where, you know, three-quarters of them didn't have anything on. I mean, it was just wild. Um, but you towed the line or you disappeared. His chief um, lieutenant was um, an absolute, absolute witch broom rider of a German woman. And she was kind of the, she was the muscle. Um, and I mean, she would just give the most vile rants and you know against the cops against the reporters who tried to talk to him whatever but people who didn't pay up and didn't give gifts and whatever they a lot of them just disappeared she fled to germany tried to um what's can't really think of the word what is it you know you extradite her Somehow she got out of that, and I saw a special no more than a year ago 
of an update on, you know, where are all these people? Well, the Bogwan is in a really, really warm place right now um, because he died. Uh, what's her name? Shirley. Or, no, it wasn't Shirley. Sheena, anyway. She's still hiding out in Germany, and nobody's sure where she's at because they're still halfway looking for her. Um, but anyway, once you got in, the testimony of people who did manage to sneak out, um, they were terrified. Um, so, and I'm not, um, let me look around here. They're not here, I think, tonight. You, you guys know the Vespers? Yeah, they'll tell you. They were Moonies. They were stuck in the Moonies. They went, they cut the screen and got out of a, of a dorm room kind of place and fled with nothing but what was on their backs to get away from them. Um, so an enslaving organization is typical. Not every single cult is like that, but but the, that's a major mark. Um, finally, financial exploitation, which is, we, that's kind of already covered that. Um, those are what, eight or nine different marks. Not every cult has all of them, but um, they have a fair number of them. And there's usually very strict authoritarian um, structure, okay? Now, let's turn to Mormonism. There's no way in the world that we'll, I'm not even planning to try to get through um, the whole thing. I'm thinking initially I thought it would probably take two. It might even take as many as three lessons to get through it. Um, the first thing I want to look at, though, is their history. And <clears throat> I got a lot of notes here that I have to kind of stick to. Um, but I would say, well, first of all, a, a, a couple of facts and a couple of opinions. Fact is that Mormonism is one of the most rapidly growing cults and has been for a long time in America and worldwide. Okay? So um, they are a challenge um, to... Orthodox Christianity. <clears throat> Second, they are fabulously wealthy. Um, I don't mean every individual Mormon, but they are, they, they are somewhere their worth is north of 50 billion as far as the church organization itself. Um, and it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30-some of billion comes into their coffers every year from um, the giving of their, their people. Um, and they have a number of businesses. They own millions and millions of agriculture acreage in the United States. Um, and so they have, <clears throat> they are very, very well established um, as if you want to call it a church. Um, <clears throat> but at any rate, um, we always call them the Mormons, um, and we'll get to where that came from, but t the, the full name is Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Um, one of the marks I mentioned of a cult is you're the only ones. Well, it's born out in that name. 
they're the Latter-day Saints. Um, they, uh, they, are, they have rescued the Church of the Apostles. Shortly after the apostle, last apostle died, which was John in 95 or 100 A.D., um, that's about all the longer that the church lasted, the orthodox you know, doctrine. And it really died out and just became corrupt and rotten and lousy and stunk to high heavens until Joseph Smith came along. And then God called him to rescue um, the whole of Christianity and purify it and you know, make it like it ought to be. Um, <clears throat> they are the fifth largest religious group in the U.S., which is saying a lot. I mean, you've got Catholics, you've got, you know, some major, major groups. Um, but they're the fifth largest, uh, fastest growing in the U.S. in terms of percentage. Um, and <clears throat> there have been a, a surprising for their size, which is pretty good. Still, they have an unusual number of well-known people, uh, politicians, um, CEOs, corporations, whatever. They are um, accomplished. I think, here's, well, I think, let's say it's my opinion, but I think it's also a fact. They're the most dangerous cult we face today, at least in the U.S. And it's because there are so many things about them that are attractive, okay? Um, let's face it, it's pretty rare that you're going to have a whole collection of, of you know, <clears throat> Mormons get picked up by the local sheriff for having wild-eyed drunk parties, okay? Um, you, you don't drink. Um, by the way, there's been a clarification in about the last 10 years that caffeine, they've discovered that caffeine was not really mentioned in, not in the Mormon writings. So apparently that's, you, you don't, you know, go to a lower planet if you drink coffee or tea. But um, at any rate, <clears throat> the emphasis on family, they have a high emphasis on um, education, both in the sense of a um, couple of universities that they have um, and, and universities around the world, but also just the um, emphasis on education of their children um, by the church. Um, I one of my track coaches in high school was a Mormon, um, and the distance runners had to run in the morning and a run at night. And if if we any of us were in the locker room early before school, you know, getting dressed and go run or whatever, he was never around because he taught that what they then called I don't know what they call it now, but they called it seminary. And he, uh, he taught seminary at the Mormon church, which was not too far from the high school, and um, everybody had to go to it. I was talking to my son yesterday, and I'm working on something I want to start doing here with our younger kids, uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. Something in the way of kind of a catechism, and a we'll do our own ritual, but a kind of confirmation. Um, we, a lot of 
conservative evangelical Protestantism, and I don't want to get off the subject here, but I think in the um, I grew up in the I grew up in the 50s. I don't remember the start of the 50s, but you know my dad was a preacher, um, pastored, and then 50s and on into the 60s. Um, Catholics were, oh, I mean, they boiled kids and ate them. You know what I mean? So don't ride your bike past their house. Um, I had a good friend who came to my church in um, Indiana who was who grew up Catholic, and I mean he was the old-fashioned parochial school from kindergarten through high school. Um, and, you know, I mean, you're going, you go to Mass and you go to confession, you do all that. And he and I would laugh, really, about each other. We both grew up, we were the same age, we both grew up when he said, I would pedal my bike as fast as I could past the big First Methodist Church downtown uh, in Indiana because he said, I didn't know what was going to happen to me. Because, you know, and I said, listen, I, I did the same thing. I pedaled as fast as you did past the Catholics. I said, hey, those statues in there are going to come get me. Um, well, here's what I think a lot of Protestantism did. Anything that was Catholic or, of course, back then too Lutheran, well, they're just Catholic light. Um, anything that was ritual, liturgy, candles, whatever's, hey, we ain't doing that, them Catholics. Well, confirmation, catechism, Catholics. Okay. Most evangelical Protestant children today couldn't spell Jesus. They don't know anything. I've taught for years back the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. Um, you'd be stunned at the answers some of the church kids would give you about simple little Bible stories. Who led Israel out of the, you know, Egypt? Peter! I'm not making that up. Why don't they know anything? Because we ain't going to be like them liberals. Well... Um, that's one of the reasons I'm going to try to do some stuff different. Anyway, um, you have to hand it to then the Mormons, their emphasis on family, um, education, training their people, the demand, which frankly is a tough one um, for a lot of people and even for Mormons, is the actually two year two year for 18 and above males and 18 months for 19 and above females okay and you are unless you're destitute you apply to get help from your local church or whatever else you're on your own expenses or your family covers or your you and your relatives cover it when they go on these two-year missions okay um that's probably one of the reasons they're growing at the rate that they're growing. They're the fastest growing in uh, the U.S. Those are all attractive things, especially as, you know, our, our culture just collapses. So you can see why people are swept into that. And there are things that are wholesome or seem wholesome about it, okay? Um, but anyway... 
let's move on to a little more of the historical background. Um, the founder of Mormonism was Joseph Smith, okay? Joseph Smith was born in December of 1805. He was born in Vermont. Now, you have to know something about the American um, Northeast. That was called, clear back then, that was called spiritually or religiously the burned over district. Okay, that's a common phrase that's used by church historians about northeastern U.S., the burned over district, meaning they had revival after revival after revival. It was days of revival. It was right after the, you know, what, 10, 15 years after the end of the Revolutionary War. And there, the Great Awakening, First Great Awakening was, Great Awakening was, uh, began in 1742, okay? And that lasted about 10, 15, 20 years of a real revival in America. Then there was the Second Great Awakening, which was about this time. It was um, after the, um, during and after the Revolutionary War. When independence came, um, there was a real influx of, of people from England. Of course, everybody that came from England came because of religious freedom in the first place, and they were all conservatives. I mean, they were Bible-believing, the Puritans, so forth. Um, and so they had had so many... Remember this, you have no social media, got, you got nothing but milk and cows and hand shucking corn and cutting firewood for the winter, okay? So an evangelist comes riding through town on his horse and he's going to preach out here in a either, not probably then not even a tent, maybe in a church, maybe in what they just called a meeting house, a log cabin somewhere. There's nothing else to do. And there were evangelists everywhere, Methodists primarily. Um, and so it was kind of like you have a bunch of Billy Graham crusades um, about every third week. And everybody goes to the altar and everybody, you know, prays and balls and straightens up and returns stuff they stole from their neighbor. And you have revival. Well, then you do it two months later. You do it again, okay? You keep doing that and you call it the burned over district. Well, there was another revival in the area, in the Methodists, but usually the Baptists, Presbyterians, those were the three denominations. The Episcopals, which were Church of England, never had anything to do with any of it, spoke against it all the time. Um, and, of course, the Catholics were here, but not um, real populous. So the three Protestant denominations, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists. They were the ones that were hellfire, damnation, preach, and lots of times they would have such large groups of people that um, they would go within, they get just without earshot, and the Baptist preacher would be over here standing on a stump preaching, you know, get saved or you're going to hell, and over here just out of earshot was the Methodist, and he was telling them the same thing, <coughs> and it was pretty wild. 
Well, in the middle of this, the Smith family kind of got caught up with the Methodists for a while, but not too long. Um, Joseph, um, at 14, and that wouldn't, in, in other words, by the time, whatever that is, 14, uh, 18, 19, okay? Somewhere in there. Um, he had a, in a, he had a, an appearance um, <clears throat> at his bedside of um, a guy named Moroni. Okay? Now, he was 14. Moroni appeared. Now, Moroni was Mormon's son. Okay? Well, he told him some stuff about some writings and things that he would talk to him about later. It was something like four years or five years later that he finally was disclosed um, the location of where these tablets were with the history of what became the Book of Mormon. Okay? Um, and he quickly kind of got away from the Methodist Church as his whole family did. And so in the spring of... 1820, um, when he's somewhere, he's like 15 by then. Um, he went into wo the woods. He went into the woods to pray and ask God about what church he ought to go to. The Methodist, the Baptist, Presbyterians, what should he do? Well, and he, again, he's, now he's about 15. Um, and two personages, okay, Two personages appeared. One pointed to the other one. Who, these two guys, they appear angelic. And one of them points to the other one and says, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And the other one said, This is my beloved son. Hear him. So they both, I'm just telling you this story. Okay. <coughs> and then he was told to join no church because, quote, all of the creeds that the other that the churches taught were quote an abomination unto the Lord. So he was not to get involved in any church at all. He goes until um, actually the dates are all uh, nine September twenty first of eighteen twenty three. Um, Moroni appears, um, talks to him, told him he had a great work to do. And that his, quote, my name, this Joseph Smith's writing about himself, that my name should be had for good and evil among all nations, kindreds, and tongues. Okay? Um, this is a 15-year-old now. And also, he told Joseph Smith that there were golden tablets buried not too far from there, um, containing the history of the former inhabitants of this entire the entire hemisphere, North and South um, American continents, okay? And that there would be some special glasses that he would dig up those plates and he would translate them. I and that was coming somewhat um, later. But to be, I guess, uh, be, on, be aware. Um, <clears throat> by this time, his family had left Vermont and they had moved to Palmyra, New York, which was not far from present-day Rochester, um, New York. 
Now, um, about four, three years later, 1827 now, um, Moroni appears to him again, and he tells him to get these tablets, and he does, um, and keep them until he got further instructions. Okay, so this has been kind of just getting by pieces. Um, just a little bit prior to this appearance in 1827 of Moroni, um, they ended up getting into what was the kind of beginning of lots of trouble with their neighbors. Okay, So Joseph Smith Sr. was a ne'er-do-well. Okay? Um, and he was a sort of a peep stone treasure seeker. Do you know everybody know what that is? Mitch, you're shaking it. You don't know what a peep stone in the world. And and listen, you're you're in the extraction industry. You know what I mean? You would find more oil if you would do what Joseph Smith's dad and then Joseph Smith did doubling up what his dad did. You get a rock, an agate, um, and there's different little reports on what it does, but you put it like in a stovepipe hat, like an Abraham Lincoln hat, you put it at the bottom, and you hold it up against your face, blocking out the light. When you, and then you walk around um, <clears throat> looking down, but there's nothing to see because you've got a hat over your face. Okay? But you're looking down and you either look through the stones or they glow and you look through them. And it's, have you ever seen people witching for water? You ever seen that? Now, I've only seen it when I was a really little kid at a church camp where the well went dry and they were trying to figure out where to drill another one. And so there was a guy out there with hangers. And, doing, and I, I don't know, I was probably five or six, but I thought, this is crazy. Now maybe some of you found water that way. I, didn't, I don't want to get in trouble with you. But um, it's the same principle. Yeah. He said they were the Urim and the Thummim. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> the actual ones, Aaron. Yes. Um, the Urim and the Thummim were, we really don't know, we have some ideas, but they were in the breastplate of the high priest. And the, I think some people felt that there was something to, they were stones, they were precious jewels, that they would either glow or whatever to let the priest know the answers, yes or no, because they would go inquire of the Lord. Lord, should we go to war? Should we stay home? Should we do this, do that? And that somehow that would give them direction. Well, so the angel Moroni told him that the Urim and the Thummim, the ones that were Aaron had, um, would be used when he got the golden tablets dug up to translate them. Okay? And basically they were attached together. So what you really got is in his mind he described giant glasses that you could look through one lens or the other and they're attached in the middle so it's just like you know basketball hoop kind of things um, <clears throat> so um, now <clears throat> let's see here 
I don't want to, I'm going to save some of the guys that he got involved with um, <coughs> that <coughs> helped him because he had a bunch of neighbors that um, kind of got in with him. Um, but it, we'll say that for a minute. In um, May of 1827, so this is all within a couple of months here in the year 1827, these three guys, Oliver Crowdery, and Joseph Smith and Martin Harris. Martin Harris owned a farm that was next door to Smith's. And they were, it sounds like the whole bunch of them were nuts. And they were all into treasure hunting, okay? Um, but at any rate, Joseph Smith, of course, never got any treasure. They were, in fact, they were looking for specific treasure. His whole employment was looking for the treasure hidden by Captain Kidd. I mean, it's not any particular, it's just not any treasure. It's Captain Kidd's treasure, which was supposedly buried around Palmyra, New York. Okay? So, while they were, they went around the woods to pray. Spent a lot of time in the woods praying. Um, John the Baptist appeared to Martin, Oliver, and Joseph Smith. Um, he appeared to them and he baptized them, um, and he conferred on them the Aaronic, A-A-R-O-N, Aaron of the Old Testament, Moses' brother, the Aaronic priesthood. Okay? Um, it had been discontinued, you know, for wherever, but it was revitalized and given to these three guys, and John the Baptist himself did it. Well, another time, very shortly after that, they were all praying in the woods again. And shortly after that, uh, Peter, James, and John appeared to them. Cowdery, Martin, Harris, and Joseph Smith, and conferred upon them the Melchizedek priesthood. Okay? You getting all this? I'm sure you're writing it all down. Um, there are two different orders of priesthood that are, you know, in the scripture, but Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Anyway, so that's still part of the, the deal uh, as of today. Um, so they now have this on the, this happened to them on the banks of the Susquehanna River where they had also moved. The Smiths moved frequently. And a lot of their people around them. And I'll, I'll read. In fact, I think I'll just do it now. Um, let me just read to you. Um, this is from court records um, in, <clears throat> at this point, New York. Um, and this is what 62 uh, neighbors of the Smiths um, signed. We, the undersigned, have been acquainted with the Smith family for a number of years while they resided near this place, and we have no hesitation in saying that we consider them destitute of that moral character which ought to entitle them to the confidence of any community. They were particularly famous for visionary projects, spent much of their time in digging for money, which they pretended was hid in the earth, and to this day, 
large excavations may be seen in the earth not far from their residence, where they used to spend their time in digging for hidden treasures. Joseph Smith Sr. and his son Joseph were in particular considered entirely destitute of moral character and addicted to vicious habits. Okay? Um, they had a lousy reputation, um, <clears throat> but it got worse. Now, now you get to the um, translation of what became the Book of Mormon. They dug up the golden tablets, and I can't remember how many of them there were, but 42 or something, I'm not sure. But at any rate, and he couldn't translate them at all, of course, because they were reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. Now, never mind the fact that there's no such thing as reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, okay? Um, it even got involved at that very time with some reporters and some judges and so forth who got a hold of linguists from Columbia University, from Yale, and Joseph Smith made these chicken scratchings that he said he copied off of these golden tablets. Um, and they said, it's no human language. I mean, it's, it's not only not Egyptian hieroglyphics, but they said there's no known thing as reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics. Um, but this is just chicken scratches. It's literally nothing, just marks. Um, nevertheless, the light came when Joseph put the Urim and Thummim up. Then he could translate it. And here's how he translated it. He took the golden tablets. He went to Martin Harris's farm next door. He went into a little pantry. And he had a curtain over the little door into this little pantry. And he sat in there. By the way, all of Smith's neighbors and anybody that knew him said he was absolutely the most prolific spinner of tall tales that they'd ever met in their life. And they said that he seemed to have no compunction at all against bald-faced lying that he was just known as a he couldn't trust the thing he said so he sits in this little pantry and he translated of course he's got the glasses he translates the golden tablets onto a piece of paper okay and then he passed the paper through a slit in the curtain to Martin Harris okay and this went on I can't remember exactly um, how many months but it went on several months two three four months because it was 1830 when the Book of Mormon was finally published okay um, and when he got done then they assembled all these papers took him to a publisher and got somebody to print them um, when people began to investigate all this, well, they asked Martin Harris and this Oliver Cowdery, who were also, in, he was involved, um, well, did you see the golden tablets? With the eye of faith, they saw the golden tablets, okay? Martin Harris said, yeah, he knew they were real, and they, again, they were, they were like hearings, investigations by the district attorney on this stuff. 
And he said, well, no, I never actually saw them. He first said on the stand, he'd, yeah, I saw them. And then pressed him a little further, and he said, well, I, I actually only saw them with the eye of faith. In other words, you didn't see them, okay? Um, and then when it got right down to it, Moroni came and took him back to heaven. And so we don't have the gold tablets anymore, and he couldn't prove it, he couldn't show it, but they knew that, you know, it was real. Um, <clears throat> now, in April, March of 1830, the Book of Mormon was published. In April, just a month later, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints was organized in Fayette, New York. Okay, That's where they were incorporated, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then um, things begin to go south, at least in the eyes of neighbors and so forth. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of condense some of this. Um, due to, I don't even know where to start, I guess, in some ways. But um, let me just say this, too. Joseph Smith was a pedophile. Okay, there's testimony, affidavits, court testimony that in Nauvoo, Illinois, Illinois, which was the last residence of Joseph because he was shot and thrown out of the second story window of a jail. Um, and I think of the, <laughs> there's a good scripture verse, um, at least for the people of Nauvoo, Illinois the king of Judah named Jehoram. He was horrible. And it says, God struck him, it said, and to be a bit graphic, the scripture says, God struck him with uh, disease. It says a terrible disease so that his bowels fell out by reason of his disease. And that lasted for two years. And it said he died in great distress and he departed to no one's regret. <laughs> okay. Um, the people in Nauvoo, Illinois, were not sorry that Joseph and his brother Hiram bought the farm there in Nauvoo. Um, the, the owner, I guess you'd say, was, you know, open secret um, brothels on the Ohio River, Mississippi, I think the Mississippi and the Ohio, right, you know, the junction there. Um, said that Joseph Smith preferred 14-year-old to 16-year-old girls and that he was a regular there, okay? Now, he, long about that time, several years go by here, after uh, they organized and published the Book of Mormon, that's 1830, Joseph Smith um, did not die uh, being killed till 1844, okay? Um, in the meantime, they had moved to... Um, First, they moved to Kirtland, Ohio. Um, they were there for a while. They got run out of town. They went to Independence, Missouri. They got run out of town. They tried to assassinate the governor of Missouri. Um, Joseph Smith, at one point, tried to run for president. Um, but at any rate, they, he, meantime, Joseph Smith, who was the prophet and had gathered quite a few numbskulls after him, got the message, which he could continually receive messages from the Lord. He got the message that 
they should um, marry multiple wives to, and he used the phrase, you know, from Genesis, um, multiply and populate the earth and, you know, whatever. Interestingly, um, his wife, Emma, um, apparently didn't think he was quite the prophet he thought he was, okay? She never bought the polygamy business. So he formally never took another wife. He just visited the brothels, okay? And committed adultery with people in his group. He was charged formally a couple places for that kind of stuff. Um, so, while they were in, by the way, while they were in Independence, Missouri, they bought a plot of ground in Independence, Missouri, still there, only it isn't owned by the Salt Lake City Mormons anymore. But at any rate, he bought a plot there because that's where the New Jerusalem was going to be. Okay? Um, and then, to jump ahead, when Joseph Smith died, the church split a bit. Brigham Young took the biggest group, but there was a guy named Sidney Rigdon, and he, he kind of took a group off. The Mormon church, by the way, since 1830, is, is, this is a rough number, but there have been 125 splits, you know, splinters going on, go, pulling out and going on. The reorganized church of the Latter-day Saints Christ, uh, Jesus Christ, um, their headquarters, I can't remember where their headquarters are, um, but a little tiny splinter group called Latter-day Saints, and, it's, and I think the, the, in parentheses they put Temple Lot, Okay? But they own the site of the New Jerusalem. And the Salt Lake City Mormons, as I think you've got to go back into the, um, maybe the early 2000s or even earlier, the Temple Lot um, LDS has turned down multiple million dollar offers from the, can uh, from the um, Salt Lake City Mormons for that piece of property. Because, I mean, if the New Jerusalem's going to be there and Joseph Smith's going to, you know, return from, you know, whatever to, I guess, rule over the New Jerusalem, it's not good if you don't own the property. Um, so I don't know where that stands today. Let me just, let me just throw this out. Here's another thing that the Mormons have, have done a masterful job of, and it irritates the daylights out of me. Um, every time you watch, it seems like, there's once in a while, you'll see these westerns or whatever that'll show. And you even, if you, how many of you have been to Martin's Cove here in Wyoming? Down um, Devil's Gate, you know, it's not far from Independence Rock. Okay, there were like 250-some Mormons, handcart people, that started out in October, of all play, uh, times, to go to Salt Lake City um, after that was established by Brigham Young. And they, they had nothing but those wooden handcarts. Hand if you ever go there, there are a lot of people dressed up in period clothing, and they've got all these little wooden, with a wooden wheel, um, handcarts. Well, 250 of them, 
died, um, nearly that many, um, in Martin's Cove, which is just, I guess you'd say, on the west side of that Devil's Gate where the Sweetwater River flows through, okay? Um, but, frankly, it irritates me that the, that the um, state of Wyoming let them buy that. Um, and they've put up a propaganda thing there about these poor, persecuted Mormons. Um, when you look at, just look at some recent history, you go back even into um, early 2000s, 1990s, uh, you remember that Church of Jesus Christ, or reorganized Church of Jesus Christ, or Latter-day Saints, whatever, in Texas, where they, the U.S. Marshal, everybody, you know, they finally cleaned them out, but it was packed with um, older men married to 14, 13, 12-year-old girls, okay? Do, can any of you, do any of you remember just watching news, and the just normal course it wouldn't happen that way today we'd think it's great you know the NBC news would think it's fine but at any rate the outrage just in general over what they discovered was going on there that's why they got run out of every miserable city that they settled into like locusts is no wonder they ran them out they weren't persecuted at all they had it coming and so they, they openly provoked people with that kind of lifestyle. Um, and if you go back to the early 1800s, I mean, that, it was a different moral climate in our country. That was just, they were aghast at that. So anyway, don't buy the business that they were poor, persecuted people. Um, now, they... I'll, I'll finish up with, they moved, they left um, Missouri, and they ended up going to Illinois to Nauvoo. Well, they set up a printing press there, and publishing Mormon newspaper and propaganda and tracts and all that kind of stuff. The news, regular newspapers in the town, <clears throat> of course, were bombarding the, you know, the Mormons every, every edition. Well, um, no one knows for sure, but um, they think, you know, there's all kinds of theories. They think that the, possibly, the owners of the regular newspaper burned their own printing press and, you know, place up so they could blame it on the Mormons, say that the Mormons did it because they'd been bad-mouthing the Mormons. Well, <clears throat> but there was a lot of people who thought that Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram actually burned it down um, out of spite or whatever. Anyway, Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram got arrested, and they kept him up on the second-story um, jail in the um, courthouse in Nauvoo, Illinois. About 200 people... 200 men gathered, a couple, I think they were in jail a week or two, 
Um, and they gathered, stormed the jail. I don't know how hard the sheriff fought <laughs> against them, um, but they managed to gain the second story, and they shot uh, Hiram and Joseph, and then um, threw them out the second story window. Okay? At that point, of course, they're without their leader. There's where some splits came. The group that is today called the Reorganized Church of the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ was started by Joseph Smith III and Emma, Joseph Smith's wife. Okay? So that group um, is still in existence. Um, there's one of the guys that was a buddy of Joseph Smith's was a guy named Sidney, uh, Sidney Rigdon. And he took a group, and they kind of went south of Texas or someplace. Um, but Brigham Young held together the main bunch. And at that time, Utah was not in the United States. So given the fact that they had been involved in Missouri politics, rumor to trying to assassinate the, the governor, um, and were just problems wherever they went, they figured they'd get out of the United States. Well, back then, they just had to get to Utah. And so that's where they headed. And <clears throat> when they got there, then they settled into the Salt Lake Valley. And it was, the story has been, you know, that there was locusts and the seagulls came. Um, that didn't happen apparently till they'd been there like two or three years. And people who... Um, well before that, who had been to Salt Lake and, and on out to, you know, wherever, um, said there were always seagulls there. But Brigham Young claimed that there wasn't a seagull within 50,000 miles until the Lord sent them to eat up the locusts and save their crops. And that was the sign that Salt Lake City was where they were supposed to be. Okay? <coughs> now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but um, they're safe because they're out of the country. Well, um, they began to settle, and they grew, and back then in those days, you only had to have 50,000 people in your population of the state to apply for statehood. And so they get their 50. A lot of people, you know, um, Mormonism caught on. And so a lot of people moved there. Well, they got to where they could apply to become a part of the state or part of the union. Um, it was inevitable that they were going to have to fish or cut bait. It wasn't that they were desperate to be a state, a part of the union, because they'd come under the government. And, of course, the one main thing that stuck in the craw of the government was polygamy. And so the, the, the price for becoming a state was you outlaw polygamy, okay? Well, that went back and forth, and to this day, it is widely practiced, and half the state, with, you know, they, they have, Utah today has the highest uh, percentage birth rate of any state in the Union. Um, and they're all, massive amounts of them, are on public the public dole. Um, 
we got 23 kids or whatever and four wives or, you know. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a drain on the, the safety nets or whatever you want to, want to call it. Um, pardon me? Yeah. 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 Um, let me kind of um, sort of finish up um, <clears throat> maybe some history here that does get us up. The, the, the Mormons were um, very difficult to deal with um, if anybody went through their territory. Um, how many of you here have ever heard of or if you've ever read the the book by an ex-Mormon professor, a woman, entitled American Massacre. Anybody ever heard of it or ever read it? It's a post-2005 or so. I mean, it's only written in the last 10 years. But it's about a, a desperate true story. Um, Brigham Young was still living. And you're in the wagon train days, uh, the gold rush, and whatever was going on. I can't remember the exact dates here. Um, they, I don't know if they were a state yet. Um, but anyway, there was a wagon train that formed up in Arkansas. And there was some guy who seemed to be kind of a little wacky, I guess. But he had a lot of money. And so he starts, he starts out with, uh, you know, a wagon train leader and all this from Arkansas. And they were going to California, going to Sacramento. Can't remember his name, but he was an eccentric sort of a wealthy guy. And so on this kind of a trip, which he had no idea, basically, he should have read stuff from people that made the trip. But he had a glass, in, he had a big wagon, basically, of his own. Um, it had glass and, you know, uh, brass pillars. And I mean, it, it was nuts to go on that kind of a trip and the trails and the mess that they were in on those wagon trips. But he's got this, is four horses and six or whatever. Um, well, they were kind of lost and, you know, it's, there aren't any signs. So they end up cutting across a corner, and I guess it would probably be, you know, what, the northeast corner, or at least in the eastern side. Uh, no, probably in the southeast, because they're angling down towards Sacramento. Well, they cut into Utah territory. Um, and there was a guy there, a Mormon, who had homesteaded, uh, and he was some bishop or whatever. Luther Lee was his name, or no. Well, his last name was Lee. At any rate, I don't know, nobody really knows the entire story, what got him off. But he gathered together a bunch of Mormons from the area. They attacked the wagon train. And they killed, yeah, anybody, nobody's read that book, right? You ought to. Yeah, I think there was. I think they killed something like 120 people and they, they kidnapped something like 50 or 60 children. Um, and basically they, they wiped the thing out. 
Then, but what they did when they later on, when some of the kids either escaped or got released, the authorities, the army gets involved. The authorities are talking to these kids trying to get out. Who did this? Well, um, they, they uh, dressed up like, um, were the Paiute Indians in that area? I can't remember which tribe it was. But at any rate, they dressed up as Indians so that, you know, the Indians hit the wagon train. Um, but the kids... There was enough testimony from kids that they saw people who were white men washing clay and stuff off their faces and their arms at creeks and wherever nearby so that, you know, the suspicions, of course, grew. The Indians didn't do this. Um, And they focused in on a bunch of Mormon settlers that ended up, they had done it, okay? I can't remember how long it was. I think there were a few of the kids that never came back. But at one point, a year or two or three after it, they managed to um, get the rest, 20-some kids, back. Okay? Um, Of course, they focused in on the government in Salt Lake City. Brigham Young, of course, didn't have anything to do with it, knew nothing about it. Um, and some, a number of years later, after the incident, they made a scapegoat out of this guy, last name Lee, and they, they didn't hang him or whatever, but they arrested him, made a big deal of charging him, and then he, you know, he served like three days in jail, and they sent him home. But he was kind of a sacrificial lamb to get the army off of the Mormons in Utah because, okay, they offered up this guy, you know, that, that had spearheaded it. Um, but at any rate, no one knows this. And I, you have to believe Brigham Young. Somehow Brigham Young ended up with that glass carriage. But he didn't know anything about it. He had nothing to do with it. Those poor, poor immigrants just trying to go to California and grow almonds or do something. He didn't know anything about it. But he got his, he got his carriage. Um, now, here's what's interesting. Yeah, we better quit. You know who John Huntsman is? Anybody heard of John Huntsman? Past governor of Utah? After this book was printed, The American Massacre, um, a bunch of people tried to get that area, which is still unsettled, um, still artifacts there, they tried to have it some kind of a national historic deal and put up a um, you know, memorial. Kind of like you know, you've got up here at um, Fort Kearney. You know, when you look over there and you see the big concrete pillar where the Fetterman massacre was. Um, they wanted to do something like that and have one of these interpretive centers. And I don't know what, you know, winding ways. It got all the way up to Huntsman, who just a few years ago was governor, and he vetoed it. He said there's not going to be any mention of it. There's not going to be any memorial. There's not going to be any markings. There's going to be nothing. Okay? He's a Mormon. Okay? 
Um, now, I know, I know, I have to be careful. I know that every single Mormon person in the world is not the worst person that's breathing um, at all. And I'm certain that there's people who are, to some degree, sucked into it. But they are, we'll look at doctrines next. Their doctrines are insane, okay? Um, you can't stay a part of that and own a Bible and ever open it and stay a Mormon. Um, Adam used to be, well, God the Father, he used to be Adam. He worked his way up to being God. And then he came down to earth and had um, literal um, marital relations with Mary, and that's where Jesus came from. Okay? There isn't any doctrines that they don't deny. Um, they are a total mess. Um, but anyway, um, so that's why I think that they are the number one dangerous cult. Um, and I think rather than us worrying about whether we know all about Mormonism, just know your Bible. Um, we don't have time to know both know your Bible, and then you know when you hear something wacky. Um, and remember, too, Jesus and the devil brothers. Um, and Adam, who used to be, or God, who used to be Adam, picked Jesus to be the Savior and made the devil mad, so he turned into the devil. Um, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting outfit. Um, one last thing. The, all the saints in heaven who've been married in the temple, and all the celestial wives are busy little beavers having as many souls as they could possibly have because they believe in pre-existence of souls. So they're having souls as fast as they can, and the conveyor belt's running. And so that's why you've got to have polygamy down here on earth so these can, people can be busy little beavers and have all kinds of bodies for these souls to go to. Okay? None of this, I'm, I'm not twisting anything, okay? So, anyway, we'll look at um, some of this later and any, maybe some of the history, which is, you, you can hardly cover it, um, especially in one night. So, at any rate, we better pray, <clears throat> okay? Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Bible, and we thank you, Lord, that it stands. Nobody's ever been able to get rid of it, no matter how they've tried. And if we just know the Word of God, we're safe. Anything that doesn't line up with it, we don't have anything to do with it. So, Lord, help us just walk in the light of your Word and keep our souls unto the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.